Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bill Anzavino, pastor of Christian Assembly Family Church in Ohioville, Pennsylvania. We pray you are challenged in your walk with the Lord through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly Family Church or to subscribe to our free podcasts, please visit us on the web at cafamily.net. Amen. Praise God. Amen. If you need a uh, note, just go ahead and raise your hand. We'll get them to you. Praise God. Uh, we're talking about taking heed as to what we hear and also as to how we hear it. As a matter of fact, Jesus taught the parable of the sower and the seed. You know that. And really, it should be the soils as well. But he said at the end of both of those, uh, actually, there's three places, but twice he said this. Take heed what you hear and take heed how you hear it. What you hear refers to the content of the message. What are you hearing? What are you listening to? And then how you hear it is really referring to our perception or how we perceive what's being said. And there is a difference between the two. A big difference between the two. You can hear something, but not really perceive or understand. And so he emphasized both of them. Why? Because what we hear and how we hear it is going to determine our faith, what we believe in and our faith, how we act out what we believe. So if we're hearing the wrong thing, our faith is going to be in the wrong thing. If we hear the right thing, then praise God, our faith is going to be in the right thing and properly used to advance the kingdom of God in our lives. Now, Satan knows that if he can undermine the word of God, he can undermine our faith. And so what he's going to do is attempt to use deception. That's his powerful tool. Deception, like he did in the beginning with Eve, to get us to believe wrong, to think wrong, so that our faith is not activating the power of God. So as we continue our study, notice in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, you talk about a bold move. What does the enemy do? He challenges Jesus. So then the devil takes him up into the holy city and setteth him on the pinnacle of the temple and says to him, if thou be the son of God, cast yourself down. Now notice he's going to quote scripture. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee and in their hands they shall bear thee up. Lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. But Jesus said to him, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now the message was right. He quoted the scripture correctly, didn't he? But he tried to very subtly deceive Jesus so that he would perceive it incorrectly. Well, just go ahead. How many of you know that Jesus didn't fall for it? No pun intended. He didn't fall for it, did he? No, he just came back with another scripture that said, it is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So, wrong teaching can lead us into wrong believing. And wrong believing, obviously, leads us into wrong faith. And so, if our faith is in something that is wrong, it'll be counterproductive. And that's exactly where the enemy wants us to be. As a matter of fact, it'll prevent us from accessing the very grace of God, which is his operational power. Look at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. 
You've got to believe to see the glory of God. We have to believe to activate the power of God. Notice here, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access. Notice this, how? By faith into this grace. And grace is God's operational power. We're, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's by faith that we activate the grace of God. It's by faith we tap into the grace of God. And then, of course, we experience the glory of God. When you got saved, you used your faith to activate the grace of God that saves a sin-sick soul. And when the grace of God saved your soul, you experience a joy unspeakable full of what? Full of glory. Praise God. Now, the enemy knows that if he can just twist our perception of the Word of God, then he can do what? Nullify our faith and make it ineffective so that we cannot activate the grace of God or the power of God that saves, that heals, that delivers and sets free and etc. Now look at here as we continue on, Mark's Gospel, chapter 7. Here, Jesus declared something. I gave you a couple of translations here. This is the Good News translation. In this way, the teaching... In this way, the teaching you pass on to others cancels out the word of God. And there are many other things like this that you do. Well, if the word of God produces faith and it's canceled out, that means the person's faith is canceled out and they will not access the grace of God, which is his power. Look at the next translation. This is the Amplified Bible. Thus you are nullifying and making void and of no effect the authority of the word of God through your tradition, which you in turn hand on, hand on. And many things of this kind you are doing. So once again, he is saying, look, you passed down from one generation to next generation, wrong teaching that people believe in. And really, it is the enemy that's really sowing the seed of doubt in the lives of people. Once again, why? Targeting their faith. Remember the sower and the seed, he is talking about what? Sowing the seed of the word of God to a life of a person. And there's four different soils that he talked about. The first one, of course, is just hard soil. And the enemy is going to come immediately to do what? Pluck up the word, the seed, before it produces a result. So Satan is going to come immediately to undermine a person's faith by not allowing the seed of the word to be sown into the heart of the person so that it can bear fruit in their lives. And so he's going to do this through religious tradition. He started with Adam and Eve, Eve particularly with deception, and he hasn't changed his method of operation. He still will use the same thing. But here Jesus is saying, you're passing down traditions of men, religious traditions that are making null and void the word of God. Now notice this, the word of God is all powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. There's no problem with the seed, the word of God, but the problem is with the soil. And if a person allows the seed to be removed immediately, it's not going to produce any faith in their heart. And then he named all the other soils, the, the shallow, the thorny. And as a result, of course, there's no production of any spiritual thing. So he attacks the person's faith by attacking the word of God, by twisting it. To make it seem good, sound good, like he did with Jesus, just cast yourself down. But you see, Jesus would have been presumptuous to do that. 
You don't tempt the Lord your God that way. And how many times have I had people say, well, if you believe so much in this, why don't you go and do that? Because that would be tempting the Lord my God, and I'm not going to do that. So it's important that we hear correctly. It's important what we hear and how we hear it so that we have the kind of faith that will activate the grace of God in our lives and produce results. Now, I have here a definition for you of a religious tradition. It's inherited, established, or customary pattern of thought, action, or behavior. It is the handing down of information, belief, or customs from one generation to the next. And once again, we know that the devil's behind this to get people to believe wrong. One of those traditions you could say that the church has embraced is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. It's called Paul's thorn in the flesh. This is just an illustration. It's just an example. When I first came into um, my Christian experience and getting saved and learning about healing, I was talking about healing, teaching a little bit on the subject of healing. I just got saved, and so I didn't really know much about Paul's thorn in the flesh. And of course, immediately you're challenged because the devil wants to challenge you through people, you know, and the person said to me, well, what about Paul's thorn in the flesh? Well, let me ask you a question. Why is it that those that are against the healing ministry of Jesus Christ or the power of God to heal people seem to point out something like Paul's thorn in the flesh and disregard the thousands and the multitudes that Jesus healed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? So what you're going to do is you're going to highlight, put the focus on the spotlight on one person called Paul, and you're going to ignore thousands of people, and every person that came to Jesus got healed, delivered, and set free. But your focus is either on Paul's thorn, Timothy's stomach, or Job's boils. And you're going to highlight them and focus on them to do what? Undermine the faith of people exactly what it is. Let's read the scriptures first before I comment. And lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. Could have been buffet, you never know. Lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, necessities, persecutions, distress, for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then am I strong. All right. So here we see something happening in the Apostle Paul's life. And I heard people again say, well, I've got a thorn in the flesh like Paul. Well, that means you have revelations above measure. That means you've been caught up and you saw some things unlawful to be seen. For one to have the same thing that Paul had, you've got to have the same reason to, for having it. Now, Paul made it very clear what it was, but many disregard what it was. And this really troubles me but yet it just makes me think like how can these people be so intelligent and yet be so hmm, ignorant of the truth did he not say what the thorn in the flesh was a messenger of satan 
The word messenger in the Greek is anglos. And that Greek word is used like 188 times. 181 times it's translated angel. And seven times it's translated messenger. So, he said, there's been sent a messenger or an angel of Satan. And what he does is he goes around and stirs up trouble everywhere I go. And as a result, I am persecuted. The infirmity is not a sickness. It is a weakness. Now, let me ask you a question. Would you be weak if someone beat your feet with rods, breaking all your bones in your feet so you couldn't walk? Would you be weak after being beaten five times with a cat of nine tails? Three times with the rods. Would you be weak if you were left in a sea a day and a night and didn't have anything to eat and had to fight the sea? Persecutions he encountered. Difficulties, which he knew from the beginning of his ministry he would have to encounter. Okay, so the point is this. Never once has it ever stated that he was sick. Look in the book of Numbers, what it says in Numbers thirty-three fifty-five, I believe it is. The expression thorn in the flesh is clearly identified. But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. Now, was he talking about sickness and disease there? No, not at all. Not at all, was he? Look at the next verse. Joshua 23. Know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps unto you and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes until ye perish from off this good land which the Lord your God hath given you. Now, you can see the language here. He's upset with them because, of course, they're not doing what he wanted them to do. You realize the Israelites were very disobedient. If you follow them throughout their history, they didn't really walk with God very long before they fell into idolatry and so on, right? Absolutely. And so what he is saying to them, look, these people are going to be a thorn in your side. So when he says there's a thorn in my flesh, very clearly, it is a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. That means everywhere he went, the different places that he went, the devil went before him to stir up trouble to cause the Judaizers to be raised up and to come against him and so on and so forth. It's clearly understood. And why that can't be seen, I don't know. But he, he identified it by saying the messenger of Satan. Exactly what it was. Well, what does he mean about I, I besought the Lord thrice? We've never been told to ask God to do something about the devil. Did you know that? It's up to us to rebuke the devil. And besides what he said, my grace is sufficient for you. He said, my operational power is sufficient for you everywhere you go to stand against whatever it is you've got to stand against. So in other words, if you're going to be persecuted, he will see you through the persecution. If you've got to walk to the fire, he will be with you. And remember, he would suffer persecution for the name of the Lord Jesus from the very beginning and outset of his ministry. He was told he would. Why? Because he's the pioneer. He has taken the gospel to the nations, to the Gentile nations. And yes, he's going to be sorely challenged. Aren't you glad that we weren't called to do anything like that? Absolutely. 
Okay, so this man was not weak with sickness and disease, but he was overcome by all the persecutions, the trials and tribulations, as he was told the afflictions that he would suffer. But what he told Timothy was this, out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Out of them all, the Lord delivered me. But yet we have our modern theologians teaching us that Paul had a thorn in the flesh and they talk about how sick he was. <laughs> Sickness would have been a welcome. Uh, what's your problem, brother, sister? I got this terrible cold. Oh, you weren't beaten with rods three times? <laughs> you didn't have the cat of nine tails, 39 stripes, five times? Whoa. Sickness would have been a welcome thing. That's the smallest thing he would have encountered. Can you see that? And besides, no weak man is going to go through all of what he went through. All right. Moving along. Generational sins, hexes, and curses. Since I brought up and opened up the Pandora's box a little bit last Wednesday, a lot more on Sunday, I felt I better just pursue it a little bit more to lay a better foundation. And by the way, if you weren't here Sunday, you could pick up the notes that are out there. I believe it will bless you. If you just read the section that talks about the divine exchange. What God made Jesus become so that what you and I could be. He made him to be sin for us to make us righteous. And so on. But anyhow. Alright. First of all. The generational curse teaching. And hexes. And incantations and all that sort of thing. Dates all the way back to the medieval times. And during those dark ages, a lot of these superstitions were being taught. Well, back in the 80s, the mid-80s, a British teacher once again resurrected or revived the teaching. A lot of other ministers took a hold of it, and they ran with it, and they began to teach it. As a matter of fact, the same person that revived it is the same one that started this shepherding. Anybody remember the shepherding ministry? time back in the 70s anyone okay if you're aware of it it was a terrible teaching that really exalted pastors or shepherds and made the people subject to their every whim in other words this is what they taught i'm your shepherd you'll do as i say they tell you what to wear when you can buy a car or cannot buy a car, make sure you carry his briefcase everywhere he goes because you see he's not strong enough to do that for himself. I'm kidding, of course. But that's what they wanted. It exalted the pastor to a position to where everybody had to cater to his personal needs. That was the shepherding ministry. And trust me, they meant it. You don't wear clothes that he doesn't tell you to wear you don't buy a car if he doesn't say you can do it and you better make sure that you support the work it was crazy and you know what it shows me that really christians can be very gullible many of them just fell for it hook line and sinker so much so that one time when i was years ago invited to do a teaching at some church i went up there and the person before me i didn't know this but the person that was ministering before me came up in this car that was driven by a couple of uh, men. He got out of the car, and one had his briefcase, and the other was carrying his notes and other things that he had. Um, and they escorted him to where he had to go and made sure that nobody got near him, 
or anything like that. And once, of course, he got done with his ministering, they carried his briefcase out and one got his Bible and they did all this catering to him. And so when I got there, one, one of the ushers comes up to me and says, let me carry your, your Bible. And I said, let me carry yours. Give me yours. He just looked at me like, what? I said, well, let me carry yours. I'd rather carry yours. What do you mean? I'd rather carry yours. I said, Jesus was a servant. He's the great shepherd of the sheep, right? He's the chief shepherd, is he not? He set the example, didn't he? I'm here to serve you, not you serve me. And that's what he came to do. And I got done with my message and addressed certain things. And after it was all over, I mean, eyes were open and people started rejoicing and saying, you know, this is the truth. Where have we been? What are we, what are we thinking here? Man, no one's better than Jesus. And Jesus came to serve. He washed their feet. He even cooked fish for them. Think about it. He served them. All right. Now, look in the book of Ex Exodus because this teaching on generational sins, hexes, and curses, this is where it all came from. Um, this person revived it. And these are the scriptures he used to support the teaching. And sold books. Listen, made a lot of money selling books teaching this. You realize there's too much merchandising the anointing going on today. Let's not go there. Exodus chapter 20. These are the scriptures that were used to support generational sins. All right. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under this earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them for I the Lord thy God am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Okay, look at the next one before commenting. Look at the next one. In the book of Exodus 34. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third to the fourth generation. Then the book of uh, Leviticus. And they that are left of you shall pine away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands and also in the iniquities of their fathers shall they pine away with them. So they use this as a basic basis or foundational basis for their doctrine that says see when the fathers sin then the, the children are responsible as well and it just keeps passing on from one generation to the next generation so god holds them all accountable but they left out a few scriptures and you know i found them so let's look at the book of deuteronomy and look at some scriptures that they left out the father shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. And then the next one, Second Kings. But the children of the murderers he slew not, according unto that which was written in the book of the law of Moses, wherein the Lord commanded, saying, The father shall not be put to death for the children, nor the children be put to death for the fathers, but every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Look at the next one. Thou, 
The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. What's he teaching? You're responsible for your own life. You're responsible for your own sin. Is God schizophrenic? Was he confused here? No. They were taking it out of context. As a matter of fact, I had some things written out there. Look at number one. The sin was the sin of idolatry. That's what it was, the sin of idolatry. Now, we can throw some other things in there, but primarily in Exodus 20, it was the Ten Commandments. It was the sin of idolatry. You have no strange gods before me. Don't make any idols of anything in heaven or anything upon the earth because that is sin. And he goes on to say, you hate me if you do that. Do you remember when Moses was up on a mountain and he, and he got the Ten Commandments and when he came down, what did he find? A molten calf. Was God happy? Absolutely not. They were sinning by making this idol. And what did they say about the idol? You brought us out of Egypt. But God fired up, man. He was fired up. He was upset with them. Okay, so the sin was what? Idolatry. And what he was saying was this. If you worship idols, then your children are going to watch you worship idols and you are going to indoctrinate them with this what? Tradition, this religious tradition, this, this informational teaching that says, hey, children, you see this molten calf brought us out of Egypt. It'll pass on to the next generation. This molten calf brought us out of Egypt. It'd be like saying someone who was raised, let's say, reared up in a home of atheists. The parents teach their children, there's no God. There's no God. And so what do they believe? There's no God. Because they got that from their parents. And he's saying that that sin is going to pass from one generation to the next. He doesn't call it a curse. He calls it sin. So here's the sin. They're worshiping idols. And because they're worshiping idols, God is not happy with them. The word curse is not used. The word curse is not mentioned whatsoever. And it's, there's no curse that's broken. As a matter of fact, if you follow up in the study, you'll find out this. There was only one way to get right with God, and that was repent and obey. So repent and obey. Obedience is better than sacrifice. So it was up to them to repent for idol worship and then obey God and do it God's way. So there's no curse here that's mentioned, and there's no curse here that's broken. So as far as generational sins are concerned, it's wrong teaching. You're responsible for your own sin. Let's move on. What about hexes and curses? Well, this involves invoking, let's say, false gods or deities or evil spirits to pronounce a curse upon a person or a family or a church or a work. To bring harm to them. And this is another thing that was being taught. So much so, if you're not aware of this, people were engaging themselves in what they called spiritual warfare. And do you know that some people were actually renting airplanes and going up over cities and engaging in spiritual warfare because they thought the closer they got up there in the first heavenlies, the more effective their prayers would be? 
Now, who could actually believe something like that? Can he hear your prayers right now? They actually did this. And they were so sold on it. And I mean, they were militant about it. Believe it or not, I know this may sound a little comical. They actually dressed themselves up in army fatigues. And got together in church meetings to pull down strongholds, satanic strongholds, and break curses. I told you last week about the church that thought that the house across the street was full of witches that were pronouncing curses on them. And they engaged themselves in what? Three times a week they came and they met. They were having prophecies and revelations about certain spirits that they were calling out and casting down, engaging in spiritual warfare. The problem was, it was a church across the street, not witches. So for two years, they engaged themselves in what they thought was spiritual warfare. And think about how embarrassing that would be if you were doing something like that. You were casting out devils and you said you got revelations from God. I mean, God didn't know that they were Christians across the street that were praying for you. That's pretty sad, wouldn't you say? But once again, they hear teachings like this and they get all involved in this. And then as a result, of course, religious tradition handed down to the next generation. What does it do? It nullifies the word of God. It makes the faith of a person ineffective and they cannot tap into the grace or the power of God, the operational power of God that saves, heals, delivers, and so on. All right. So look with me in the book of Numbers. What the Bible really teaches, and we just, a little bit, we touched this last week. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people, for they are too mighty for me. This is Balak telling Balaam. Peradventure I shall prevail, that we may smite them, and that I may drive them out of the land. For I want that he whom thou blessed is blessed, and he whom thou cursed is cursed. So, the ones you bless are blessed, the ones you curse are cursed. So, I want you to curse the Israelites. And so he goes and tries to curse the Israelites. Go on to the next verse. 23 verse 8. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? How shall I defy whom the Lord has not defied? He tried to curse them, but when he opened his mouth to curse them, he blessed them. And the king was beside himself, saying, I told you to curse them, and you're blessing them. And he said, every time I open up my mouth to curse them, blessing comes out. I, I guess since God didn't curse them, I can't curse them. Since, since God blessed them, I can't curse them. Look at verse 20. It makes it very clear. I received commandment to bless, and he had blessed. That's God is blessed. Notice this. I cannot reverse it. Let me ask you a question. Has God blessed you? Can anyone curse you? No. But yet, people, even Christians, believe that they can be cursed, or these witches or whatever, apparently are more powerful than God himself. I want you to know something. No human power, no demon curse can possibly undo the blessing of God in your life. But notice that next statement under point C I have there. Very, very important. Notice this. If the person believes in curses more than God's grace, then they can be controlled by fear. It's not any curse that creates the problem. It's 
fear and unbelief that does it. You remember Job said the fear that I feared, that I greatly feared has come upon me? What brought his uh, problems into his life? The fear that he greatly feared. So you see, the enemy will use tactics like fear to undermine a person's faith in God, to get them to act in fear and unbelief, and then he can control their lives. So when these people are going through their deliverance meetings, and trust me, I'm telling you, I've been told that people have paid big bucks to be delivered. You talk about merchandising the anointing? First of all, I believe that the Lord himself will hold these people accountable for taking money to deliver them from demon powers. But the thing that always puzzled me is this. Once they were delivered, it only lasted a week. And they had to go back again. That's a pretty expensive habit. When does it end? Tell me, when does it end? You need delivered from this spirit. You need delivered from that spirit. When I first came here 30, almost nine years ago, there was a group of people that were supposedly prayer warriors, and I didn't know where they were coming from, but they were prayer warriors. I appreciated the fact that they were praying. They used to get aside afterwards with each other and said, if they ever saw me yawn, it meant demons were coming out of my mouth. Demons, because I yawned. Well, if they just would have followed me throughout that day, they would have known it wasn't a demon. Now, I'm a little tired. They can't distinguish between flesh and spirit, demons' activities and that sort of thing. But oh, to them it sounded so spiritual because we're casting out devils and demons and we're breaking curses over. You can't be cursed. Jesus said, if you stay in my word, you're my disciple indeed. You'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. You know what the truth is? You cannot be cursed because you've been blessed. Amen. And that's the bottom line. Now, notice these New Testament facts. We're going to throw them up here for you so you can see them. These are New Testament facts. Did you know we're not under the Old Covenant anyhow? How many of you knew that? Fact number one. Christ delivered us from all evil powers. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. Who has delivered us. Well, as you, as you back it up to verse 9, he's talking about the prayer that he prayed for the church at Colossae. Because you see, the church at Colossae thought that they had to do other things, like add to their faith certain works, observing certain feast days and festivals and stuff like that. And Paul trying to correct their theology and say, uh-uh, that's not necessary. So I pray that you be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you will walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks to the Father, who's made us meet or able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who delivered us out of the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. His prayer was that, that their eyes would be opened, that they could see that you've been delivered from the power, the authority of darkness, and you've been translated or uprooted from that kingdom and planted in the kingdom of God. Now, wait a minute. This is huge. This is magnificent. Jesus uprooted us 
from Satan's kingdom of darkness and he transplanted us into the kingdom of Almighty God. We're no longer under the jurisdiction of the kingdom of darkness like they all once were before Christ's resurrection. We are now in the kingdom of God and we've got all power and authority in the name of Jesus. And look at Colossians 2.15. As you back that up a little bit, you see that he, what did he do? He took the handwritten of ordinances that were against us and nailed them to the cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And when he emerged from the grave and he said, all power and authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore in all the world and make disciples of all nations. He was transferring his authority, the power of his name to all believers saying, in my name cast out devils. The only interaction we should have with devils is to cast them out. That's it. And that's not a curse. It's a casting out. Cast them out. Because you see, if the, if the devil can curse you, well, how long would you be cursed? Uh, would you be under the curse? Till you, till you got delivered, then he'd curse you again. And then and again and again and again. And it would be never ending. That's why these people that are involved in all this deliverance ministry, they go back and over 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 and over, and over again. They never get free. Why? Because they don't know they've been delivered. And I guarantee you, you come here and learn that, I won't charge you the five hundred dollars that they were paying for deliverance. Look in the book of not list number two. If this one doesn't make you shout, go out and buy a new shouter. All right. First John number two. We know that Satan has no right to touch us is point number two. Did you hear that? He has no right to touch you or me. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. And that wicked one toucheth him not. You ever hear that song, Can't Touch This? I wonder if that's where MC Hammer got it from. Can't touch this. Can't touch this, devil. Oh, yeah, but you know, I saw you sin yesterday. Oh, did you forget that I put it under the blood? Can't touch this devil. Can't touch me. Have no authority over me. But you see, if a person believes, well, you know what, I've got to, this devil's been following me all day long and just wreaking havoc with my family, with my life. There's where the problem lies right there. See, that's not a curse. That's a lack of knowledge. And my people perish for what? lack of knowledge if we would ever see that the finished work of christ means we've been delivered set free and satan can't touch us then we rise up in faith and activate the power of god praise god to put him in his place beneath our feet where he belongs look at number three god doesn't remember our sins let alone the sins of our ancestors I've had some sit in my office and tell me, but I sat through this deliverance thing and I had to go back. I had to get my, my father's sins, my grandfather's sins, my great-grandfather's sins, and all the sins of my ancestors so that I can be free. Really? Well, I don't know about you, but I had a blood transfusion. 
Look at the book of Hebrews and what it says. This is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Do you know he forgot what you did yesterday? Did you know he forgot what you did on the way here to church tonight? He doesn't remember it anymore, let alone the sins of my ancestors. See, all that teaching, all that does is stir up trouble in the life of the believer because they believe for that. You want to believe in something? Believe for the glory of God. I believe to see the glory of God manifested in my life, in my children's lives, in my grandchildren's lives. I'm not believing for curses. I'm believing for blessings, praise God untold blessings passing from one generation to the next and we'll get to that in just a moment look at number four number four there's not one biblical example of jesus or the apostles breaking a curse or teaching on the subject never been taught can you see them around that little campfire jesus and the apostles let me break this curse you got a curse over you they didn't break curses over each other. That's not taught in the Bible. They didn't teach it. The apostles didn't teach it. The apostles didn't do it. But yet, we've got these teachers that revive these superstitions. They're not biblically based. And once again, Christians fall for it. And now they've got to go through all this. I can never understand that. I'm telling you you're blessed and you want to say you're cursed. I could never figure it out. Oh, but we got to go through... No, you don't have to go through all this. Jesus entered the strong man's house. Jesus bound up the strong man. Jesus took back what we lost, what we gave up in Adam. He got it back and He gave us the power and authority to use His name to enforce Satan's defeat. That is the truth. Sin has no power over us. Sickness has no power over us. Look at the next one, uh, number five. Believers are blessed. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So has he blessed us? Is that Bible? Are you blessed? If you are blessed and God has blessed you. Whom God has blessed can't be cursed. And no one can reverse it. If God didn't pronounce it, then you can't be cursed. Because you've been blessed. And once again, what's the devil want to do? Make people think. They've got to do all these different things to experience the blessings of God. No, Jesus did it all. All we have to do is believe it. Remember your faith. I believe it. I believe I'm blessed. Some of those songs were catchy songs of old. But you know what? I believe we should sing some of them today. I am blessed. I am blessed. Every day of my life, I am blessed. When I get up in the morning, till I lay my head to rest, I am blessed. I am blessed. Hallelujah. Mm. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Why? Because I'm blessed. Stop talking about what the devil's doing. Talk, talking about what Jesus has done. It'll change our whole countenance. Look at the next one. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Let's read it. Galatians 3, 13, 14. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Being made a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree. Why? That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Verse 14 says that we're blessed with the blessings of Abraham, right? But verse 13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, right? Okay, so let's use that terminology, curse. Curse, curse of the law. Well, let me ask a question. Who pronounced the curse of the law? Did Satan do it? Did his demons do it? Did some witch or warlock do it? Who pronounced the curse? God did. Remember, he said, if, you're, if he says you're blessed, you're blessed. If he says you're cursed, you're cursed. He said, these curses will come upon you, not because of some divination, but because of disobedience to my law. And what he was saying was to them, if you break my law, you open the door to these things coming on you. If you obey my law, you open the door to the blessings to come upon you. You don't want the curse, you want the blessing. But that's neither here nor there. Because Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And we are no longer under the law, but we're under the blessings. We're under grace. Look at the next point. The next point, Christians are not under the law, the Mosaic law, we're under grace. Look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Well, guess what? Where there is no law, you can't violate it. Jesus fulfilled the law for you and for me, which is why when we go to the throne, we ask for mercy. Don't give me what I deserve, Lord. Give me what Jesus deserves. He knew we'd missed the mark. He made provision of the blood. All we have to do is just say, I missed it. Forgive me. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness by the blood of Jesus. And guess what? You're cleansed. You stay under the umbrella of His protection. You're blessed. And you can't be cursed. And then, this is the one. Look at the last one. It's not in the New Testament, but there's a reference here that I want to point out. Anybody here make idols? Anybody here hate God? You know, when I wrote that, it reminds me of this, this young man in Africa. And he would oftentimes get up in the daytime and, and walk by his father's workplace, a hut somewhere. And the father's job was to whittle the idols that his people worshipped. That was his job. And he was very good at it. So he would whittle out of wood these idols and they would all of course, have them in their homes and they would bow down to these idols and they worship them. I admire this young man because you see, one day he walked by and just said, he had this thought. My father makes the idols that my people worship. Who makes my father's hands? And he would do this. He would go up on the mountaintop and he would daily Say that very saying. My father makes the idols that my people worship. But who makes my father's hands? And he would stand on that mountaintop and he would look up to the sky. Who makes my father's hands? After some time, an angel appeared to him and said to him, Go back down to the edge of the woods 
and you will see a man coming in on an elephant with a black book in his hand. He will tell you who made your father's hands. And he found that to be true. The man came in who was a missionary, preached Jesus to him. He and the whole tribe got saved as a result of one young boy's concern about who makes his father's hands. Well, do any of us here worship idols? No. Notice in, in Exodus also it says, and they hate God. Okay? So really, if, there's, if, if, there, if teaching is true that you could be under a curse, then number one, you must be worshiping idols, and number two, you must be hating God. But let's read Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9. Because you see, for some reason, the latter part of Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7 is left out. Okay? And here's basically saying the same thing. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to how many generations? If a generation is 70 years, how many years would that be? How many years? 70,000 years? How many years? Why would you want to be under a generational curse when you could set in motion 70,000 years of blessing? Why do they ignore that? Why do they focus on the curse and not on the blessing? And beside, the one who pronounced the curse was God himself, not man or not a devil or not a demon. And it was the curse for disobedience. But if you're obedient and you love God and you walk in his ways and statutes and keep his judgments, you are setting in motion spiritual laws that provides blessings for you and your household unto a thousand generations. Can you say amen to that? So what's the conclusion of the whole matter? John's Gospel, chapter 8, and verse 31 and 32. If you continue in religious tradition, I'm sorry, then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then you're my disciples indeed, and ye shall what? Know the truth, and the truth shall make you free from religious tradition, doctrines of devils, etc., etc. But notice the word know. Epignosko. The Greek word for knowledge. And it's referring to a, a revelation that is deeper than surface knowledge. It's knowledge that perfectly unites the subject with the object. That means you enter into the knowledge. And you've heard me say it before, but it bears repetition here. You can be a scholar. You could be someone who knows all about electricity as far as book is concerned. You, you know on paper everything about electricity that you could possibly learn. You're an electrical engineer. So does that qualify you for that verse? Absolutely not. You may know all that and that's wonderful. But I can experience that with no knowledge as far as book knowledge is concerned about electricity by just getting zapped. Because that's the knowledge he's talking about. Now do you know electricity? You know, one day I told my wife, she said, you know, that thing needs to be fixed up there. I said, okay, I got a chair out. She goes, don't you think you should turn off the electricity? I says, ah, I think I can handle this. Then when my fingernail turned black, after getting zapped, I didn't say it. I wasn't going to say it. I'm going to tell her. 
Then I went and turned it off and said, I think I better do this a different way. I knew electricity then. Do you know you can know every ingredient that your grandmother used to make her homemade pizza? And you could have it written out or her sauce. My, grand, my grandmother made phenomenal sauce. I think everyone says that about their grandmother. And my mother duplicated it, of course, and passes it on down. You can know every ingredient that goes in, at least to some degree. Because you see, I don't know about you, but these people that came from, you know, like Italy and all that, they don't write it down on a piece of paper. A pinch of this. About this much of that. And that's how they did it. But you could have it written out. You can know every detail of everything that's in that sauce. But that's not knowing it. You don't know it until you put a straw in it. And sip on it. <laughs> I told that once to, my, to someone. I said, my mother's sauce is so good I can get a straw and just drink it. Amen. So you, you have to taste it, in other words. That's why the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So that's the word know. You shall know the truth. And one more example. Adam and Eve. Remember in the beginning it says. And Adam knew his wife Eve. And she conceived. And bare a child. A bare a son. So that's called intimacy. That is knowing. Now. I, I, I encourage you that if you know a lot of women. Make sure that you don't tell your wife. That you know a lot of women you just know them surface level you get the point so there is a depth of knowing that goes beyond surface now why is this important because you know what we say and listen I know that scripture I know that scripture I know what that says do we do we really know it have we entered into it have we embraced a oneness with it do I really know by his stripes I am healed? Do I really know who the sun sets free is free indeed? Have I really entered into the revelation of greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world? You see, this is why we have to hear the word over and over and over and over and over again because we're wanting to enter into a oneness with it so that it becomes a part of us. And that is what covenant is all about. We become one with God. Praise God. Do we really know you're the temple of the Most High God and that you're complete in Christ? In Him is the fullness of the Godhead bodily and you and I are complete in Him? Do we really know that? Have we embraced that? I have to stop because if I don't, I'll go on all night. So let's all stand.